You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm shaking my booty. He's back. <laughs> hello, I'm Mark. I'm Simon. Does anybody recognise that man who just said, hello, I'm Lee? <laughs> <laughs> hello. I'm Where Lee. were you last time? Christmas. I had like four weeks of Christmas. Yeah, we recorded it actually in this year. Oh, did you? You just didn't turn up. You said, oh, I'm coming, and you just never showed up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I Yes. You had a well, better offer. Yeah, I did. What, what were the themes? Should I be bothered or not? We did TARDIS. Oh. Oh, and we did the sequel to our new, our very first yeah. episode. Yeah, you wouldn't oh. like that. It was all episode. full of spoilers. Yeah. Was it? <clears throat> right. Well, yeah, it mainly was. speculation, really. <laughs> Do you know, As and always. speaking of which, um, I was struck by a thought today, so might as well bring it up. Write that in your diary, folks. I'll strike you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I might as well say it. Uh, Should we leave, Lee? Leave him to it. It's like a double act. Go on. I'm going to okay, bugger off the I was episode. just, I was listening to New 2 um, this morning at work as I was going around, and it just struck me, Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS, right? It's only a few weeks ago I was saying, would Stephen Moffat do a bottle episode in the TARDIS? Because Edge of Destruction's already done it. And I was saying maybe Stephen, was it, did I say maybe Stephen Moffat's the only person who perhaps would? Yeah. Mm. And it suddenly struck me, he's doing Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS in these eight episodes. And he's doing what we think is the Ice Warriors one, which is a very 60s episode, right? <laughs> oh, you knew that, because we talked about it in our very first yeah. episode. Go on, so go on. Come here, it's closed. I'm not getting any more spoilery than this, that's it. I'm <laughs> okay. done with spoil. I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, but here's the question. In season 20, they had those six stories, and after the fact, they said, oh, there's something from the past in every story. I'm just wondering, mm. not will Stephen Moffat do something from the past in each of these eight episodes, but given that one's a very second Doctor story, and given that one is a very edge of destruction, so therefore stroke first Doctor story, will he do seven episodes that in some way probably very subtly, so that we might not even notice it, reference the first seven Doctors and then do an eighth episode that ties it all up in a bow. Yeah. Well, you know, I think he'd do a really good version of Paradise Towers. I said this before. So why not bring that... Would that then leave an episode with the eighth, ninth, tenth and eleventh Doctors in it? Pardon? Would that then leave... No, because if there's going to be a multi-Doctor involvement, they'll be in the special, right? Hmm. 
I'm saying the finale mm. will be whatever Stephen Moffat's finale was going to be, but that's episode eight. I'm saying are the first seven episodes going to be the flavor one the sh- that represents the flavor of the first Doctor. Yeah, then. yeah. Like the Edge of Destruction becomes Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, a bottle episode set in the TARDIS. Mm. One represents the flavor of the second Doctor. So you've got the Ice Warriors in a very sixties feeling story yeah, based on the age. Yeah. And will there be one that perhaps represents the flavour of the third Doctor in some way? Time monster. Pompousness. (laughs) Well, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, there are signature stories from all the Doctors. So will there be episodes that somehow reflect those signature stories? But why would you stop at the seventh? But I'm saying he's got seven episodes, so it just stands to reason that mm. if he was going to do something like that, you would just do the seven classic series. It, it had occurred to me about the um, ref- going back to previous foes, just like season 20, because obviously you've got, is it uh, just a coincidence we've got the, uh, the great intelligence in the Christmas one and so forth, and will it always be something like that? That was so I exciting, don't... but you probably talked about that already. Yeah, in fact, you were actually here for that podcast. Was I? It was so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) But what I'm saying is more so than or less so than actually putting something in. I don't think he's going to put something in in every episode. I think that would be stupid Mm. to even suggest that. that Yeah, but you could always put something in the background walking about, can you? Imagine the Candyman just hanging around in a pile of mess ready to be put back together again by somebody in the background. Anyway, what's today's theme all about, JR? Okay, we'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> um, an email uh, from Gary Davison. Enjoyed the latest show about Series 7B and loved your multi-doctor stroke Sharda idea. Uh, just a thought, and this is interesting. Well, you haven't listened to it then, Lee. No, I haven't, sorry. <laughs> Doesn't matter, you carry on. So uh, he says, just a thought. And I thought this was worth bringing up so that we could uh, answer his question. He says, could the pickup scenes that Steemo kept referring to involve classic doctors filming little inserts for the existing episodes in a similar way to Eyepatch Lady's initial appearances? Mm-hmm. Why not? Well, that's what I'm asking. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, well, I think so. Or I'm talking, well, let's answer that question logistically. Go on then, Simon. <laughs> what what come on start again right i'm saying yeah do we think it's possible Stephen moffat did a production notes in doctor who magazine in which he gave a preview for the next eight episodes yeah and in this preview a little sort of tick that he had was that as he went through the preview, rather than give information away, what he would do would say things like, oh, we've not given this one a title yet, or we have given this one a title, but we're not going to tell you. This one's got a title and it's great and I can't wait for you to hear it. And the other thing he did was, this one's finished. Oh, except for a pickup shot we need to do. This one's finished. Oh, except for a pickup shot that we need to do. And we talked about the fact that pickup shots like that, done after the fact, have to be for one of two reasons. And... One of those would be, well, not, not for one or two reasons. There are two things, two considerations that you have to take into account when you're talking about doing pickup shots that far after the fact. One, it can't be on the sets that are specific to that story because those sets will be struck. And on the other hand, 
also you might have to do the pickup shots a lot later because a they might involve an actor who wasn't around during the course of the production or b they might all be inserted taking place on a set that wasn't built constructed at the time of the original production so these pickup shots could just be in the tardis or you know in the countryside or at a location and they just need to do the pickup shot because in the edit the story's not making sense unless you add another scene to it mm -hmm. Or it could be that they're doing short scenes to insert a la Madame Kovarian in the first half of series six. I was going to say, I was yeah. reading quite an interesting older interview with Stephen Moffat about how he writes and the fact that he doesn't, he's not one of these writers who starts with a beginning, middle of an end and knows how it's going to end. He literally writes in order and says this happens, then this happens, then this happens. You are joking, mate. So it's quite possible. Well, yeah, he was talking that he How knows can you possibly do what he does? With well, those what I'm saying is in it linear also, order. It could also <laughs> be a story impossible. thing or it could be a plot thing in, in as much as he's had this idea at the end that he then wants to slot okay. back into those yeah. episodes. Well, on the idea it's not of that in... difficult to write it like that because when he says he doesn't... Yeah, but when he says he just starts, he knows where he's going. Well, that's how I write, but it always ends up a mess. So, you know, <laughs> but it, you, it must be a lie. Um, no, he's on your pickup shot thing, uh, Rose appeared on the screen of the TARDIS console shouting, Doctor... Silently, yeah. and those were kind of little things that Russell ah, yeah. T. Davis decided to put in, and he could put them in silent, silently, so nobody could leak out the fact that Rose was coming back, or you yes. know that sort of thing. So well, that's that's, that's what, what you're we saying. saying. Well, I say I think so. I think he could do it, and it would work brilliantly. Yes, and it but... could be the seven seven doctors. It could be any part of what they've been in already. Some extra stuff that was thrown away on the cutting floor. Anything at all that could be used, and there's so much CGI you can blend no, and play with them and put them the somewhere. Am I? He's not Why? talking about putting in old clips of the Doctors into the No, episodes. he isn't, but that's what I'm saying he might do, and I'd love him to do that over the seven episodes to build but up to something all, on the eight. Yeah, but you'd have to show them on screens, right? Not necessarily. They're Doctor not in Who, HD. it's in science fiction, you can put them They're anywhere. They're not in HD, you can't <clears> just <throat> put them on the screen as they are. You could, You could do something with them. There's enough technology out there that you could do something with older really stuff. You really can't. Okay. Well, you could project their faces onto a, a body. Yeah. Much if like you were going to do old clips from the classic series, you'd have to show them on screen or explain it away in that way somehow. And if you're talking about all seven stories then, leading up to the last one... Well, we're only talking about clips, aren't we? Little inserts here and there yeah, but how in the background. Are you, yeah, but how are you going to justify putting a clip in each one of seven stories that have nothing to do with each other. What, like Rose? Yeah, but she... She, she had nothing appear... to do with the story that was, that, that was going yeah, on. But she, she didn't just appear, to appear in every episode of that series, is what I'm saying. You're talking no, about... three or four, maybe. But, you know, it's... it's... No, one. She appeared in one Was it like just that. one? I yeah. thought she appeared no, in two, other things as well. But anyway, this, it is possible to do that. You could slot stuff in. You could whack it but in But on both times, she it was could in be the TARDIS some... in this. Yeah, I know, but I think it's possible. That's my... But that's not the point Gary's making. No, but that's where we seem to end up at. Well, that's where he took it. Okay. Get back to the point. <laughs> he's, <then. saying laughs> if, he's saying if we're talking about having a multi-doctor special with all yeah. the doctors in it, would they therefore go back and film scenes with all those seven doctors and insert them into the episodes? Maybe one in each. He's talking Isn't that about just what I said? little plot points that build no, up towards a multi-doctor the classic series in. Of doctors in as part of the plot, as part of the thread, as part of something that would, um, you know, build up to to the last big 
anniversary story. No, it's not little, building up to the anniversary story. Or whatever, just a little titillation, little bits and pieces. Yeah, but why you're not? talking about clips. I'm, just, I'm, I'm agreeing with, uh, well, not agreeing, because he's just saying, do you but think? he's talking about... But I bet in his heart of hearts he's wishing. That oh, that he's be probably the... hoping. Right, then I hope with him. But we're talking about filming new stuff with the actors and inserting that. With the living actors you're talking yes. about? Yes. Well, be done as well, can't it? No, because this series starts broadcasting on the last Saturday in March and they don't start filming with those actors until the middle of April, which is where I was trying to get to 15 minutes ago when we started talking about this. (laughs) So the answer, Gary, is I'm afraid... No. Very likely not, although it's a lovely idea and we all wish it was not the case. And do you know know what, Gary, if we're right, I'll buy you a pint. Oh, crikey. Of of milk. recorded. Of milk. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, Graham Boyd says, just a quick one, to say the great intelligence completely passed me by without diminishing the effect of the episode. He's talking about the snowman, obviously. It was only after reading the BBC website later that I found out about it, which only made the whole thing a bit cooler. I haven't got to the end of the podcast yet, but I just wanted to add that I bet that JR is not a fan of the new titles as they add the spaciness from the Davison-McCoy era that he's not a fan of. Hope I'm wrong because I blooming love them. (laughs) So do I. I agree. I love them. I think they're very good. We're talking Starfield, aren't we? (sighs) And the face. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I like the the face was fine. He didn't wink, did he? He may as it well. Didn't occur to me that it was like a Starfield. It's just the, the movement and everything. It's lovely. It's really it's, nice. It's fine. Which was just like in the McCoy era. No, it wasn't. Not at all. Not, the only other, the, the only classic titles <laughs> that had that kind of movement in were the McCoy titles. Yeah, but not fast panning across like that. Yeah, Very different. It's you get almost, too hung up almost, on the um, technicality and miss out on the message sometimes. Or I maybe think. if you watch the McCoy titles in fast forward. <laughs> but the point is that McCoy titles are the ones that move around as opposed to just going down I a tunnel. Admit, yes, I admit. And this one like... moves around instead of going down a tunnel. And it's the only new series one that's done that, which puts you in mind of the only classic series one that's done that. I'm not the only person to say this. I've read it elsewhere. I was walking down the street the other day in Exeter, and it was like more than one person. It was late at night, and I was coming home from something, and I was walking past this taxi, and this man just opened the doors, and he he was sick outside the taxi, nearly hit me. Okay, and I thought that's disgusting. And as I looked at this multicoloured rainbow, all I could think about was McCoy titles, because that's exactly what it is. It's just a whole load of vomit on screen. So, what do you think of the new titles? (laughs) Is that a load of vomit on screen? It is a bit messy, but I do like it. It's just bad. It is a bit messy. He just really pleased with himself and wobbled his head like (laughs) Oliver Hardy. Yeah, well, I had a story and a point. (laughs) Um, Oh, on Twitter, David Kowalski got in touch and said, having heard the Toys podcast, I can now appreciate your profile picture, to which I responded, what the hell are you talking about? Because I'm so used to seeing a profile picture of me, which is the, you've seen the picture of me with the head in the, it's, Tom Baker time tunnel, right? It's usually I forgot that on Twitter that. my picture is of me with the pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, what are you talking about? All the grumpy ones. You do like a grumpy profile pic, don't you? Oh, on Facebook, everybody yeah. says my pictures are grumpy. Yeah. I'm not looking grumpy. No, it's, just like, looking, it's just an artistic you know, moody cool. look, yeah. Trying to be Lenny Cohen or something. <laughs> Start him singing again. No. No, not the fuzzy pet song, <laughs> First please. First we take Manhattan... 
Let me take Fuzzy Felt. <laughs> and then we take Winter Key. Oh, see mm. what we did there. Oh, yeah. Um, we got a message on Facebook from Tim Holt. You know, Hello, at Tim. some point we will get into the episode, I promise, but we've been going for a while now, and I've mm. still got two and a half pages of the three pages of messages to read out. Hey, come on. So it's not going well so far, Bring but we'll bear right, with you it. You said you hadn't got much to say on the subject anyway that we're doing. Oh, <laughs> no, but that doesn't mean you three won't. Uh, Tim Hull said, loved the New Year's Day podcasts. And yes, I think the two Cybermen do look different. The new look makes them look lean, mean fighting machines. Don't mm. think you could outrun those ones, laugh no. out loud. Silver Iron Man. So I put two pictures of the Cybermen up after our discussion and asked people if they thought they looked very much different or similar. Jeff Waddell says, would rather have seen a 10th Planet style version, mm-hmm. but it is a slight improvement. Uh, TF Kai Wong says, reminds me of Steampunk Iron Man. Mm. Hey. I thought the older Cybermen were a bit more steampunk than the new ones, but I don't think there's that much between them. I think they look like Transformers in comparison. The the uh, Cybers ones. Punks would never wear flares. <laughs> well, yeah. Reminded me of Acro Year. Do you, remember, do you remember Acro Year in the Micronauts? No, no. <laughs> Sorry, somebody out there will remember the Micronauts. We're still, we're still looking. <laughs> Richard, <laughs> Richard Judge said, definite improvement. The previous version looked clumsy. These look like they might even be able to run. That would be cool. I was about to say, just a quick interjection there, that the, that the actual movement, if they're going to be that freer with their movements and they're faster, they're much more of a threat. I, don't I think could we'll be wrong, but because they still act as in. The, yeah, yeah, I know, but I hope they do. I if hope they don't do the marching it, it's, thing. It's the Cyberman equivalent of the Daleks with the stairs, isn't it? Getting up the stairs, Cybermen yeah. start running. Yeah, because they like marching. Yeah. Well, the, but, you know, the production photos I've seen. I think I'm right in saying the lady that they have who does all the choreography to make sure they're all doing it correctly. It's still uh, the same one? It's still the same one. <laughs> if they start plus, marching again... There were lots oh. of photographs of them marching. Why? And plus, no. I mean, honestly, could you see a guy in one of those Cybermen costumes running and not looking ridiculous? That wouldn't be scary. It uh, would be... It's all to do with tricks, isn't it? I mean, you can... You can... <laughs> It's yeah, all, why it's all to do with the Benny Hill style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to work. Run like a girl. <laughs> with her hands in the air. No, I'm what? a Cyberman and I'm okay. A oh. sleep all night and a run all day. Still the gag in him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Raph Edwards says slightly more genital room with the new with the new genital. Cybermen. Oh, well, okay, he did mean slightly more room for his testes. That's true. The previous version looked clumsy. Oh, no, 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 hang on. I've gone back Testies to the previous from Telos. Um, Telosties. Slightly more genital room. That's what I was looking for. Sorry. Telosties. Sorry, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> They're, like They're like two little Death Stars. Lee's lost it. <laughs> <laughs> Telosties. I've got my Mandaz in a twist. Oh, <laughs> that sounds painful. I'm not oh, going there. That's silly. It's a silly oh, game. Just like your Mondas on the cyber mat on the way in. Oh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, getting back to the emails. Twin please. planets. Um, <laughs> slightly more genital room on the new ones. Uh, went for the G-string look on the old ones. Clearly a tubbier actor in the new Cyberman costume as well. Oh, is there? Well, he does, he does look slightly tubbier. Or it could just be the costume because it seems mm, to be more... Boned. 
Face more bunched. As bunched. opposed to... That's what I'm going to call myself from now on. <laughs> bunched. <laughs> but it is. The new costume yeah. around the midriff is slightly more bunched. Yeah. The old one was just... Maybe they spring up like those things you used to push down when you were a kid. Mr. With Springy. The, with the little, yeah, with a little sucker on the bottom. <laughs> well, if they're not marching, they're going to be bouncing around all over the south. That'd be great. Let's do it. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Dear Stephen. They could be like the master at the end of time. Boing. Boing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Boing. Oh, uh, yeah. That'll be really Well, a bit scary. like Christopher Lloyd at the end of Who uh, Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. Yes. Oh, no. no you got lost there. Far too long. Yeah. I can't imagine Neil Gaiman, though, you know, <laughs> in stay, you know, in staging, not stage instructions, what's it called? Um, on a script. You know, uh, directions, stage directions on a script. Cyberman runs off to the left, Binny Hill style. <laughs> Not going to happen, is it? Just, just say, um, my daughter asked to watch a, a Doctor Who yesterday, and I showed her the five Doctors, just to say, oh, look, there's lots of different ones and what have you. But watching the Cybermen, they really do, when they're putting that bomb together, honestly, it's like looking at a load of pensioners doing it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You it expect is. one of them to come along with a, with a, a one of those harsh. frames. On pensioners? Yeah, that's pretty harsh, yeah. yeah. On say. pensioners? Well, I wouldn't right. say that to a Cyberman's face, though. You know, and then the Raston warrior robot comes along, and the mm. Cybermen turn around to him and go, In my day, we had none of that. <laughs> that's, that's and the Raston warrior robot turns around and chops all their telos off. Yeah. <laughs> Telosties. <laughs> Gotta get it right. <laughs> Telosticles. Telosticles. Yeah. Do they have a Telosticle bag? Not good. Uh, Paul Griffin says, oh yes, 10th Planet Cybermen complete with sellotape holding down the large lamp on their heads. <laughs> he obviously doesn't like Jeff Waddell's uh, well, you, back could, the- you could take that bit off and take the front chest off, which is like a chest of drawers, and then just have that, you know, really scary, bandaged, sad look. I think Jeff's referring to the fact that he looks slightly human. Yeah, yes. that's what I meant. You know, that's kind what of I half, half-baked. That's quite what I'd scary. Like see. Yeah. Fair Gary much. Davison says it's a little more streamlined. The fifties deco styling is gone in favour of a modern Iron Man look. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the redesign will make the Cybermen scary again. That's down to the story, director, lighting, etc., etc., and movement. Well, Benny Hill <laughs> springs on the feet. My roller skate. And finally. <laughs> David Kowalski came in and said it feels slightly more old school, reminiscent of the Bling-esque upgrade the Daleks got. I don't know, honestly, what would make me happy, but I'll say... No, I don't know, honestly, what would make me happy, but I'll say I prefer it. Why do I want them to have a gun in their headpieces, he says. So, you know, Revenge of the Cybermen, gun in the head. Yeah, that was a bizarre idea, really, because you got to move your entire body round to fire at somebody. And even more bizarre... From a production point of view, they had to take their helmet off and reload it every time they shot anyone, so it caused <laughs> all sorts of, of headaches during the filming. <laughs> they uh, were probably the campest of all Cybermen, <clears throat> weren't they? What, the revenge? Yeah. Yeah. You Did don't they have think... to activate their guns by putting their hands on their hips and standing in that way? Or it, that yes. <laughs> I think they did, actually. Yeah. yeah, but at least they had an excuse for putting their hands on their hips. Look at Earthshock. It's no, just hands on their oh. hips. Yeah, hands, hands on, the hips. on the hips. Yeah. Yeah. Look at Earthshock. It's just hands on hips and excellent throughout Scratch the entire thing with out. no excuse whatsoever. How do you know Sideman's about to fire? He starts mincing. <laughs> <laughs> or how do you know Sideman's about to say excellent? I don't he know. He starts mincing. Oh, oh right. I, see. I don't know what I'm saying. I wasn't making a new joke. I was just oh, playing with the no, old one. You were. 
I'm really going to strike you in a minute. <laughs> strike you? <laughs> Who says that nowadays? Oh, I'm JR really going does. to strike you. That was beautiful uh, the way you said that. No, it went back to 20 minutes ago when we started oh, really? this podcast You've and we watching... made a joke about the word strike. Okay. You've yeah. been watching the extras on Shard, haven't you? Strike, strike, strike. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I watched it today. Ironically, Yeah, brilliant. Very good. Fantastic DVD. Is really it? good. Mm. I don't know if I can bring my, as much as the film's all been cleaned up and probably looks sparkly and nice. I just don't know if I can bring myself to watch that. No, I, I will. But the documentaries, I'm saying, yeah, I'll pro- watch those. Okay. Fantastic, yeah. Right, we have got <clears throat> a huge email from Ben in Indiana, but I'm going to go for it. Okay, Ben. And this is an introduction into our topic for the night. How long have we been recording now? Stupid time. 25 minutes. 25 minutes, <laughs> and we've not even mentioned the topic. Hey. This is embarrassing. Well, before we do then, um, Lee, on the spot for the next 60 seconds, talking on the topic, the pirate planet. Oh, blimey, pirate planet. Um, hmm. I remember seeing this for the first time, because I didn't see it in the original run, really. I remember a little bit of it, but it was on UK gold i think back in the early 90s and it got to the point where i'd seen so many tom bakers and john pertwee's on that run that the pirate planet really didn't kind of do anything for me i had to, when i rewatched it a few years ago i really enjoyed it i enjoyed the overtop performance i loved the little the little parrot going around what's his name again polyphase avatron and and canine very silly but great great fun but my favorite part of that entire episode was tom baker's beautiful kind of rant about the planets and what the uh, pirate guy was doing squishing him up and he just you know what's it all for i love that moment it's fantastic and i wanted to see tom baker do that all the time throughout his entire tenure but obviously i think by that point getting a bit bored and that's what it comes across as not a bad story though it's all right good idea Stop. Yes. Nicely <coughs> <Honestly> done. <coughs> I dribbled out of my brain. Sorry about that. So we should be up to nearly half an hour now. We are an embarrassment as professional podcasters. Didn't even go. give me a round of applause. We've never applauded on the spot before. Yeah, but it's the first time I've talked for 60 seconds non-stop. Could have been worse. I could have given you like wheel in space or something. No, I you, I'll shut up You've got something that you'd be able to talk about. <laughs> Uh, Ben in Indiana. When it comes to classic Doctors, I've always adored Patrick Troughton. The second Doctor just had everything I ever wanted from the character. With that being said, the other day I was being all fanboy and pondering odd things, such as which Doctor Who story I hated the most. Of course, I was weighing up the usual suspects like Time Lash and the Twin Dilemma and the Rani one. When I suddenly realised that I was skirting the issue, in all honesty, the episode I hate the most... The episode I consider the worst of all time is actually The Two Doctors. Now, before I go any further, mm-hmm. I think he makes a very good point there. There are episodes that you may like the least because, for example, the script or the production just really doesn't come up to par. And yes, Time Lash and The Twin Dilemma and Time and the Rani. Underworld. You know, all these are candidates for ones where either the script or the production has let it down in some way. Mm. But in order to hate something, in order to actively dislike as opposed to just not like, there must be a reason. There must be something in that story. Like me with Revelation of the Daleks, Mm -hmm. where I think Eric Sayward's just written 90 minutes of nasty people being nasty. And that just doesn't appeal to me at all. And, you know, it's quite a funny script. It's quite well directed 
It's very well cast and it's played very well for the large part, but I just don't like it for those reasons. And I'm saying you can not like Time and the Rani and you can not like Time Lash and Underworld and all whatever else there's as much the, as you like. There's a very popular, each of those has got a reputation, hasn't it? So it takes some of the thinking out of it. You know, you just think, yeah, what's the one with the worst reputation? Yeah, Time Lash, blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Um, but there's nothing in there to hate. I No, I, I found it perfectly I watchable, actually. Time Lash is awful, but there are bits in it that I still watch and enjoy. But I there's mean, nothing you know, in there. There, there are massive mistakes all the way through bile up. But I know what you mean. No, well, no, there isn't. To hate a story is very difficult in Doctor Who because we will all find something to like about it. But Time Flight's very close because oh, I think it's the lit- mediocrity. Mediocrity sucks and it's just so dull, boring, waste of space. Yeah, but And they is- built the story around having Concord for a day. <laughs> okay, let's find out then why Ben hates the two Doctors. Okay. Uh, he says, I was, uh, it was a real fall awake moment because I've always considered the second Doctor my favourite. But, but that is why I loathe the two Doctors so much because it completely undermines and rewrites the motivations and backstory of the second Doctor, which as a result also rewrites his character, in my opinion, of course. <clears throat> Put simply, it broke my heart. And I can sum it up in one word, terror or rather the lack of terror in the Second Doctor's attitude towards the Time Lords. His aloofness in the Two Doctors completely contradicts his actions, emotions and terror at the end of the War Games, Mm. and in a larger sense flies in the face of everything we knew about the first six seasons of the classic show. I'll try and explain my feelings, he says. You see, I can point to the exact moment I fell in love with both the second Doctor and how Troughton performed the role. It's actually the moment I turned from interested Doctor Who viewer into raging die-hard fan, and it's in the War Games at the end of episode 4, about 21 minutes in. The Doctor and Zoe are wearing funny glasses and pretending to be one of the aliens running said War Games. The Doctor has just tricked the alien scientist into explaining how their brainwashing machine works when an alarm goes off and the war chief enters with a group of guards. The scientist points out the Doctor, noting that he's been very helpful. So the war chief casually looks over at the Doctor. The Doctor, smiling at Zoe, now glances over at the war chief. Immediately, the Doctor's expression goes blank, soon replaced by a look of shock, a look of recognition. The war chief also shows horror on his face, and he too recognises the Doctor. There's a millisecond of silence as the two stare at each other, and in that insanely short beat of time, a million things happen in the minds of the two characters. The war chief recognises the regenerated Doctor, and knows that with another Time Lord involved, the others will soon follow, and his plans and dreams are now crippled beyond control. In effect, his life as he knew it is over. At the same time, The Doctor recognises the War Chief and realises that he's been found. Another Time Lord knows where he is and it won't be long before the rest will know too. In effect, the Doctor realises that that instant his life of happy wandering is over. The amazing thing is that neither of the characters are thinking of the here and now, like the brainwashed soldiers or the need to run away from guards. Instead, they both are seeing the bigger picture and it terrified them. None of that stuff is said. It's all shown in the faces of the two actors, in their performance, in a split second of silence. Then, nearly simultaneously, they both scream, Run, Zoe, run! And stop them! And suddenly, everything changes forever. 
I swear that scene still gives me the shivers, and I have no idea if it was written like that in the script. I'm sure the actors and the writers did not care about a possible bigger story 50 years later and all the implications. But the actors at the time knew enough that it was a huge moment, and they gave it depth. Just an amazing moment. <clears throat> and Troughton builds on that moment right through to the end. That is what gives the War Games its impact. You see beyond the cardboard sets and the refrigerator magnet control panels because Troughton's acting just sells it. You believe in the Doctor's terror of being discovered by the Time Lords. We've never seen the Doctor so scared and actually learn that he is so terrified he's never even dared to mention the real name of his people to anyone, not even his companions. Not until here at the very last moment when he's given up and calls on them for help. The performance is just glorious and then, and then, the two doctors comes along and negates it all. Terror is tossed aside. In just one story, all of that previous drama and emotion is made void and silly. I mean, the two doctors is asking us to believe that all along the second doctor was working for the Time Lords and that he's not scared of them, he's just annoyed by them. Before, he dared not speak their names, but now we're told that actually the whole time he would openly name-drop them in front of Jamie and make flippant remarks. All this bothers me because it tosses aside something so fun fundamental to the Doctor's backstory and motivations. Compare the second Doctor we see here to what we saw in the War Games and it completely pulls the rug out from his emotional terror that we saw, making the Doctor now seem to be an overacting drama queen. Especially since, again, it is implied that these two Doctor events happened before the War Games, sometime in Season 5 when he was with Jamie and Victoria. I mean, if the two Doctors happens before the War Games, then why didn't Jamie say, Hey Doc, relax, what's the big deal? I thought you were working for the Time Lords part-time. Did you lie on your time card or something? <clears throat> Of course, I eventually heard it explained to me that the producers and writers of the two Doctors had confused the backstory of the Troughton era with that of the Pertwee era. Knowing that made sense of the character flaws in the script. Basically what he's saying, Robert Holmes wrote a third Doctor story for the second Doctor. That's essentially what the two Doctors is. <clears throat> Knowing that made sense of the character flaws in the script, but it didn't make the hurt go away because The Two Doctors is still an official episode, not some spin-off novel or comic strip. It happened. <clears throat> Am I overreacting? Probably, but I freely admit that this is the one era I'll allow myself the luxury to go stark raving bonkers over. I think every fan secretly has one thing that drives them nuts. Besides, I usually have zero problems with the odd continuity issue here and there. For example... The question of unit being in the 70s or the 80s, no big deal for me. Is the Eye of Harmony on Gallifrey or is it in the McGann TARDIS? Either way, I'm cool with it. Was the Big Bang explained in Terminus or Castrovalva or even in Slipback? Again, no problem. Because in the long run, they are minor details that can happily be shrugged off. But I cannot get past the two Doctors because it messes with the character of the second Doctor. It wasn't a case of simply rearranging dates or using the wrong costume. And that is why I now realise that Hand to Heart, The Two Doctors, is my least favourite, most loathed story. I'm sure you've heard of the fan theory called Season 6B, which explains how the events as seen in The Two Doctors can only happen after the War Games, but before Spearhead from Space. 
Personally, I wholeheartedly embrace that theory because without it, The Two Doctors just completely destroys and voids the drama and poignancy of everything I adore and love in the war games. It's a mess, and put simply, Season 6B clears up the mess. Anyway, to close this insane epistle, let me just again reassure you, I generally do not go crackers over Doctor Who minutia, which in all fairness truly sounds like the argument a crazy person would make. Why did you look at Lee when you said that? Because he's the only one who's right in front of me with a big grin on his face. And Simon's (laughs) struggling with his cold. Uh, We thank Simon for coming along and setting us up, even though he's struggling with his cold. We could have not had a podcast this weekend. Um, Finally, Ben says, I know, I know, there were production issues in 1985 and nobody had a show Bible and it was 20 years of continuity and Eric Sayward, yada, yada, yada. But all that doesn't matter when you do not know these explanations. Bottom line, it makes zero sense when you watch the show from the beginning, from one doctor to the next in a short period of time, without an e-cultural insight or DVD documentary support, like I did with PBS in the 1990s. And that's Ben. Ben. Absolutely amazing. Brilliant. I think he's pretty much said it. Great point. Yeah. yeah, we don't need to go over that. No, so that was the podcast. Well done. Yeah, yeah, thanks for listening. Yeah. <laughs> In my own head, um, it relates back to that. Uh, this is just a stupid way of uh, a Doctor Who fan trying to make sense of something which doesn't make any sense. Which is back in the Five Doctors when the Second Doctor is visiting the Brigadier. In my head, it all happens around the same. If it is a, a thing between the War Games. The spearhead from space, it's the same okay, thing so what, because you've got that thing about, you know, the second doctor knowing that Jamie and Zoe have been sent back to their time zones. And yeah, so what is this? Rubbish. What is it called? Six Season 6B. 6B. And where does this come from? Terrence Sticks wrote and Terrence Sticks realised that they'd made a huge, flaming great cock up. And <laughs> um, when the BBC started putting out past doctor novels, Terrence Sticks wrote one, the name of which I can't remember. Do you know what it one is? Uh, he wrote the Eight Doctors, didn't he? No, 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 not that one. The one, the season six B one. Oh, uh, okay. It's an historical one, I believe. Like the board games again, something like that, isn't it? Connected with that yep. theme. Not sure it is. Could be. I don't think it is because I don't. Not think the one with him dressed in like Napoleon's outfit, is it on the front? Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that. Uh, introduces the season 6B theory, which is that at the end of the War Games, after they got rid of Jamie and Zoe, and it looks like the Doctor's off to regenerate, we never actually see him turn into John Pertwee. So Terrence Dix introduces the second Doctor post the War Games, who's actually running errands and missions for the Time Lords, before eventually he regenerates and turns into John Pertwee and we get Spearhead from space. But that's hideously spurious and it all takes place outside the television canon it was made up for the books to explain away a great big continuity cock up i'm happy with that i like those little plugs i think it makes sense no i'm i'm with ben i think if you've made that bigger cock up uh, i wouldn't say i dislike the two doctors because of the cock up like he does although i can fully see his point Mm. but it is a cock up there's no two ways about it. And, you know, I'm not going to accept an explanation in a book 15 years later or whatever it was. It's a very valid point, though. The, do- the second Doctor in that story is not the second Doctor. No. And, and there's a, there, there was always an element of um, camaraderie, wasn't there, between him and Colin Baker and, and the fact that it had, they'd wanted to come back since the five Doctors and it 
it all seemed like a good idea to get Patrick Trout back, and he was well up for it. Mm. And then so it was a bit of a jape, really, a bit of a laugh. Yeah, Robert yeah. Holmes, because yeah. he wrote a couple of Second Doctor stories, so they thought, let's get Robert Holmes to do it. But mm. of course, Robert Holmes is also he did the, the guy. Space Pirates, didn't he? <laughs> Space Pirates and the Crotons. Yup. But the point is, Robert Holmes is also the guy who wrote most of the Time Lords continuity. He wrote Terror of the Autons, and he wrote Brain of Morbius, and, you know, he wrote The Time Warrior and The Deadly Assassin, and all these stories either introduce or reference, make mention of, or demonstrate or show various bits of Time Lord continuity that we'd never have. You Mm. know, the the name Gallifrey comes from a Robert Holmes story. You know, so that Robert Holmes is kind of inured in Time Lord continuity and remembers writing for the Third Doctor, running missions for the Time Lords to, you know, not in any Robert Holmes stories, but, you know, Robert Holmes was around for those stories. And so that's what he writes. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's forgotten that none of that came until afterwards. Too late. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yes. Subject for tonight, the Second Doctor. And... Okay, I'm going to let you guys talk on it for a bit. I'm just going to say one thing first. Second Doctor, love Patrick Troughton. Era itself, it's a bit crap, isn't it? It's got a lot of rubber monsters in it. There's a lot of B movie in there. I mean, the whole, the whole, all the seasons are a bit like little B movie stories, aren't they? But Pat, it, I mean, what Ben said about Pat's performance throughout that particular scene that you really liked. I was watching Lost in Time the other night just to quickly catch up on on Pat Troughton and every scene he was in I just adored. I adored him in every scene. He's one of my favourite Doctors and I still can't quite put my finger on it why. But And it's not the stories, it's him. Oh, he he is the most watchable person in that. But when he did Salamander, can I just quickly point out, I was looking at it going, well, okay, yeah, he, he obviously can play character actors, uh, character pieces. But I just thought that whoever chose that accent was a needed a bit of a punch, to be honest, because that I was love a, it, though. it was a real it's letdown. So fun. He didn't need the accent; he could have still pulled it off uh, without the accent. Oh, but that's that's my Eric own. Stadnick said he sounded like a waiter at Chi-Chi's. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's just a, such a terrible accent, isn't it? And uh, but his acting in that again is superb. And you look at both of those characters, think mm. not the same actor, but the stories by and large are pretty crummy. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, they introduced so many classic monsters and they had to do it in some kind of a way. And mostly they were pretty much the same story regurgitated, the base under siege thing, which is just, you know, just which I look. love, actually. We've got to look at the titles, the titles of the stories. Yeah. Bottles of Snowmen, Ice Warriors. It's a great it's all... title. <laughs> no, no, I'm not saying it's bad, it, but you can see how it wor- how it was working. Yeah, it was yeah. very formulaic, as you say. I think it's been mentioned before, there's a lot of reverence for that period perhaps because you can't go back and watch it because it's gone yeah 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 there is that you do hold it hold it up so high if you could actually go back and watch them all well this is an interesting thing because the tomb of the cybermen was held as being like you know the holy grail of lost stories and then it came out and we went yes it's great and then a lot of people kind of went well actually it's all right and uh i was i I personally think it's brilliant i really like it i love it and i'm so glad it came back and i was really excited but it wet is, myself. as stories go, it is a bunch of old toss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you compare it to some of the other early ones, say like Marco Polo, yeah, I mean, you've got no weight there whatsoever. It's a story in which the Doctor turns up, 
He can't direct the TARDIS, so he turns up in this place completely by accident, which just happens to be <laughs> the place where the Cybermen have buried themselves in a tomb that only has a lock that can be undone from the outside, mm. which just happens to be on a planet that nobody's ever visited before because the Cybermen's planet was blown up. And it just so happens that the people who are on the outside trying to get in and wake the Cybermen up can't and the doctor helps them yeah but this is pulp fiction this is stuff from the it's 90, 30s not even 40s. pulp fiction isn't it it's pulp just fiction old writer time... doesn't get that kind of stuff wrong it's old time radio it's pulp like fiction is... you've got to set the scene up as quickly as possible to get into the story and see the monsters and it's just a really quick stupid way of getting everybody in one in one place oh we just ha- so happened to stumble upon this thing and there were people there already trying to do it's like travis as well but, isn't it yeah, that's not how pulp fiction works pulp fiction is very straightforward and it doesn't make fundamental logical mistakes in the storytelling particularly not in the setup it skates off pretty quickly into it though with I a can lot of forgive a lot of that because there's some great moments that, in that. Okay. i'm talking about the errors in the writing I'm mm. talking about the fact that the people who actually got together and put the script together did not think. I can overlook that when you see moments like when uh, the second Doctor goes to grab Victoria and, uh, by the hand and walk through the doors and he grabs hold of Jamie's hand and just little moments like that are oh. really good. And the speech he gives to Victoria about it, mm. how he remembers his family. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, exactly. And it's delivered so... Beautifully, I mean, like you say, yeah, and the, the twenty writing. seconds out of ninety. <laughs> yeah, the, write, the writing in general, you know, and <laughs> and some of the support cast through a lot of Pat Trout's era was just, oh, you know, just terrible. Really, some of the symbolism and the and the mythology of the Cybermen, though, within that is nice. The idea, the idea that they are in tombs in these. Mm. Fantastic. And the music as a visual trick. But let's make the black guy the big dumb one, and let's make the foreign woman uh, the really yeah. shifty one. There's a lot of stereotyping. <laughs> oh my going god, on. It's not good. But um, the the music <laughs> as well. I love the music of that era. Yeah. Actually, I've got to say. Are you talking about? Is <laughs> <laughs> that what you're talking about? <laughs> Well, not that particular tune. Um, <laughs> the Cyberman theme. I know, but... It's a piece of stock music. It's all right, it's, it's fine. And but there's a lot of good music. Of incidental music's well. quite good. No, not incidental. I'm saying the incidental music in those stories was from stock. Was it? Yeah, yeah. it's not Doctor all Who music. Stock. It's just... What do you mean? There was, there was no uh, incidental no, music created by Radiophonic inc- Workshop. Some music had... Instant, some stories had incidental music that was written for the story and the Cybermen stories just used stock music and so did the Web of Fear. Yeah, I like it. Mm. It is good. Very good. But uh, you talk about Jamie earlier uh, mm. reacting, you know, to Pat's kind of character and I watched him in the Abominables, 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 the, the Snowman. Yeah, that one. Right? <laughs> and uh, he was so strong as a companion yeah. and as an actor um, really strong, really on the button. You just look at him, you think... No, he was as an actor, he was not as a companion. You cannot say there okay. is anything good whatsoever about the writing of Jamie as a companion. It's all right. It's not bad. They, 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 they have a few slip-ups with it. the fact that he's, you know, oh, the wee beastie and, you know, oh, he doesn't understand things he's from a certain age. A lot of the time they get that quite right and he's learning as he's, as he's going. You know, the, the thing in the sky, the big metal thing in the sky. You know, he start, starts getting used to all the technology and everything around him. He, becomes a, he does go on a journey, but it isn't a journey like Amy or Rose or anybody no, nowadays. I've got him reading and writing about three stories in and then about three <laughs> stories later he can't read and write again. I'm exaggerating, but oh, that's right, what okay. his character was. Yeah, they know. just stuck 
a boy in from okay. 1638 or whatever it was. What word? Do we know that? Oh, I can't I remember. Um, well, let's say that Fraser Hines did a good job with the material he had then. Yeah, yeah Fraser Hines yeah. did a brilliant job with some pretty poor material to be perfectly blunt. Yeah, but it's, and it's actually, it's a dynamic. It was a classic dynamic, wasn't it, between the Doctor Jamie and whichever female character? Well, Victoria really was well. a good one as well. Oh yeah, it? there's Victoria, the girl from Edwardian England, <laughs> and here she is. Let's put her in a mini Victorian skirt. England, in yeah. as... <laughs> Victorian, isn't it? No. She is she from Victorian England? I think she's Victoria from Edwardian England. I don't think they would have made a Victoria That's from confusing. Victorian England. Blimey. Why didn't I call her Edward? Wrong. <laughs> it should have had a character called Edward from the Victorian yeah. era. Yeah, Am I wrong? Well. <laughs> it's just been silly now. <laughs> Edward Waterfield. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Her father, who yeah. would have been her age during Victorian... No, I don't know. Anyway, but the point is, (laughs) here is a... Okay, let's say she's Victorian. Here is a Victorian girl who they put in a miniskirt in her very second story. I know. Are we really to believe that this girl who was brought up as prudishly as... She was like a beast released. Well, yeah, but what I'm saying is that's (laughs) appalling, isn't it? Well, of course it is. Look at my ankles, look at my ankles. Yeah. Is, but they, they didn't stop doing that. You could have Even done in that. In the 80s, they <clears throat> did it. You could have done that after, you know, three or four stories mm. and expected us to believe that maybe by that time she's so used to travel that she'd maybe put something on like that if they asked her to. But really, then you've got to say to yourselves, okay, what kind of guys are the Doctor and Jamie that they want to get this girl from Victorian England, this teenager from Victorian England, and get her in a miniskirt? Well, they it's did. like, oh, yes, it's we've got nothing a Victorian to... girl. Let's get her in a miniskirt, quick. Well, they they ditched her for the girl in the uh, Spangly cat suit instead. Oh. <laughs> the thing... Yeah, I know, stop it. Simon's having a moment. You can't, you can't think about character and writing in those days. You know, you can't, you can't think too deeply about it when you're talking about somebody like Victoria. They, they just stuck her in a skirt for the dads. That's, that's, that's what it was all about. That's my point, though. Yeah. That's my point, exactly. I love, absolutely love the Patrick Troughton era <laughs> because I love Troughton and I love Fraser Hines and I love Wendy Padbury. And I just think they make the almost ideal TARDIS team and on screen together, even in something like the Dominators or the Crotons, mm. they are just so much fun. I can just sit and watch them all day. Mm. I absolutely love but it. As a fan, look down those list of stories but, from Power of Daleks onwards, and it's like, Daleks, uh, what is it next? Is it quite, it goes quite soon into Ice Warriors. Oh, it's Dalek, and Cybermen, Snowman. Dalek, Cybermen, Ice Warriors, Yeti, Ice Warriors, Yeti. And you I just think, that. what? Yeah. Faceless ones. <laughs> Macro Terror. Oh, yeah. Underwater Menace. But anyway, to cut me off halfway through my sentence, sorry. I love the team. The material they were given was pretty shoddy. I mean, yeah. one of the classics of that area is... Area? One of the <laughs> classics of that area is... <laughs> is it an era or an area? One of the classics of that area <laughs> is is the mind robber, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We all go, oh. and it's true. It's one of those stories that you can sit down and go, oh. especially. But actually, you know, sit down and watch it with your brain turned on, and it's a pile of pants. It is really. I, mean, I remember watching it at tea time once. Uh, back at home and I was watching it thinking oh this is really good I like this and my dad who you know probably saw it the first time around said ah 
this is terrible. This is rubbish. You know, look at that horse. I know that's a unicorn. But, uh, you know. But it's not even just the... Thing it's not even the bad effects. He was just looking at all the effects. He obviously just... Wasn't but it's not even just that. The, the, the production values and that are shoddy. That yeah. unicorn. But I love it. the concepts. <laughs> Maybe the concepts, but the way the concepts are put on paper is still pretty shoddy. It doesn't add up. Didn't help they probably had about 50 pence as a budget. 51 Yeah, no, I'm not talking about production anymore. I'm talking about the writing now. The script mm. doesn't add up. Not really. Mm. No. I mean, if you've got somebody like... Say, I mean, everybody who's in that story seems to be in a story for a different reason. And the way that you've put them into that story also seems to have been entirely different. And there's no internal logic between one bit and the next. And it's nice that they do things like the... Um, can't remember the guy's name. Krakow or whatever. <laughs> That Zoe's supposed to remember oh, from the, the actually yeah. his name. Because I want the guy no. liking it. Oh, no, it's called Kapow or something oh, yeah, like that. Like I can't remember. The carcass. The carcass. The carcass for crying out loud. Oh, we'll <laughs> put a K on the front and people won't realise we're talking about a dead body. You know what I'm saying? It's... Oh, is that what it was? But the, the production values are shoddy, but the writing's shoddy too. <laughs> What's he doing there? You know... You've got Gulliver, who can only speak in lines from the book, right? No. So why is... I love that. I really, really like that. Yeah, that no, idea. I like that. But yeah. that would only work in a story in which everybody speaks in lines from the novel that they were supposed to be from. You know Didn't what I'm the saying? carcass, then? Have you not read any of his stuff? Well, that's probably all he said and, um, in his futuristic comic. Krakow. <laughs> <laughs> he was in Star Trek. Yeah. But that whole era, but, the whole era felt... Um, when you when you watch w- William Hartnell and you get to the end of the William Hartnell era, it starts feeling a little bit more edging Eerie. back towards the the very young child as opposed to say the nine, ten, thirteen year olds or whatever, and the family that suddenly Patra, you've got all this you know uh, all this dialogue which is explaining you know I think it's it was Zoe with the, the carcass wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Jamie, it's the carcass. He's from a, a future comic bit, 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 that I read, and bit, bit, you think well okay, we don't really need this description of this bloke you could probably just say it, it in could just one... be a fictional character yeah, 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 ever seen yeah. Before. it's just everything's explained and it's all very dumbed down and a bit patronising in places if not and all then the you time get to, I know we don't <laughs> usually concentrate on the stories as much but then you get to the end of the mind robber and it's like this entire place exists because this man with the funny stock on beard with the glue that's not quite working the master is, uh, Wizard of Oz yeah but that's the point it is <laughs> the Wizard of Oz yeah it's a completely, and in this era of things like the invasion and the ice warriors and all whatever else, you then get to this story where you're actually in an actual magical realm that only exists because it's being projected from the mind of a man who can't even stick his beard on properly. <laughs> <laughs> He's imagining his beard. It was the master. It took him a while to Attack get to a good beard, and then he came back as Roger Delgado. <laughs> You know, for years, people were saying to me, you know, if I showed them the mind robber, they say to me, has he got something in the corner of his mouth? <laughs> because for one entire episode, and because they filmed it pretty much as live back in those mm. days, under the hot studio lights, his beard glue would come unstuck. And there was just like a blo- glob of glue in the corner oh, of his did mouth. Did you ever have teachers at school after break would come in to do the lesson and they would have milk? Oh, no. Milk mouth. Not milk mouth, but crumbs. Oh, really? oh, yeah, Mr. Lawson, he, he told me that uh, my life would never amount to anything. Um, 
Thanks, mate. Uh, he came back once. And look where you are now, Lee. Yeah, well, he came, and his beard was disgusting. He used to have pasty flakes in it all the time. Oh, wow. I thought, I'm oh, going to amount to nothing. That's what one thing you, you don't do when you have a beard is do pastry when you've got to go back into a classroom. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, well. <coughs> Foolish man. Never amount to nothing, Rawlings. But then the he moment. never got to do the Blue Box podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Stuff yeah. you, Lawson. Um, but then the mine <laughs> robber didn't push the envelope, it just sidestepped it, didn't it? It just went well, completely... Yeah, but it didn't set it in an envelope, it set it on a pencil case. <laughs> Whatever, I don't know. But then you get, the, you know, flashes of fantastic brilliance with the war games, for instance. I love the war games. I know it's still, when you really break it down, it's not that much of a complex story writing, um, you know, event. But it is an event, in a kind of weird way. They did dash it off quickly it's become a lot of people's favourites it's one of my favourite all time mm-hmm. uh, stories why that is it just is it's just well, such for me, a it's great a miracle idea. that it holds my attention for 10 episodes yeah it's just That's... a story where everything came together I think mm-hmm. most of them are I think most of the stories certainly everything that exists from the Patrick Troughton era I think is not just watchable but hugely enjoyable mm. and that is not just because of the cast I think the cast's a large part of it but I think everybody working on the show at the time just realised they were just making a bit of hokum for the kids. Who was it who was talking about children just now? Was it you, Mark, or was it... It was Lee. Yeah. Lee. That, that's absolutely right. Doctor Who suddenly became for six- and seven-year-olds again mm. instead of maybe the... I don't think it ever really was for 10- and 11-year-olds until later, until John Pertwee, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I know the John Pertwee that suddenly did step up. I mean, you're looking at Quatermass and things mm. like Inferno. But I don't think you... Very you occasionally would have something getting that way in William Hartnell right back to the mm. start, the first three episodes after An Unearthly Child. It's pretty grown-up stuff. I think so. By comparison, but it's still aimed at children. You know, Doctor Who always was for children, and in Patrick Troughton's era, they ditched the historicals. So basically, they ditched any pretense at being educational Mm -hmm. and just went for the jugular in terms of let's just entertain the kids on a Saturday night. Yeah. And it's like uh, Doctor Who unbound. It's like no more chains. Chains are off. Let's just have fun with it. And, you know, I just said it's rubbish. The writing's rubbish. And so it is. But, you know, they were doing it basically all year round and recording every week, and to get through it, they just had a lot of fun with it, and I think the directors are on board with that, and I think everybody who shows up in it is just showing what a good time they're having, and it's infectious. Mm, It is. But I will say one thing. Now, because none of the stories exist, we look at, or fandom as a whole, tends to look at, Series 5, Season 5, The Monster Season, as pretty dark and pretty grim and pretty grown-up and pretty adult stuff. If we could see it, it would be no more dark and grim and grown-up and adult than any of the other exactly. stories. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Fury, Fury from the Deep, I always thought that would be the one that I really want to see. But when I first saw the clips of the foam, <laughs> you know, on a bit, literally just foam, they're playing around in foam, and I thought... Okay, this isn't quite going to be the dark, scary thing I envisioned it to be. Apart from the two... Oak and Quill. Yeah, who I always forget the name of. That little, they, that little clip scared me. Mm. Yeah, mm. it is creepy, but it's not creepy in a grown-up no. way. It's creepy in a kiddie way. Mm. You mm. know, it's not uh, It's not night terrors by any stretch of the imagination. It's mm. 
it's Scooby-Doo creepy. It is. <laughs> That's exactly you know? what it is. And I think, uh, you know, if we could see, we've got one episode. Yeah. We've got one episode of the Web of Fear, right? And Web of Fear's reputation is built on that one episode that exists. But some of that episode's pretty hokey stuff. I mean, once they get into the uh, underground tunnels, fantastic. But the first 10 minutes when they're in the TARDIS, lolloping around on the floor and whatnot. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, there's a lot of that, a lot of lolloping. And once you get to the end <laughs> like of that, lollop. <laughs> and once you get to the end of that first episode, all the creepy creeping about in the underground tunnels is pretty much over. And after that, it's a lot of people standing around in rooms talking and occasionally running up and down. Yeah, and the old traitor him bullets there. At, yeah, yeah. throwing bullets at the Yeti. And it becomes pretty standard, sort of slightly military-esque. Military-esque? Militarist? Militaristic. Sort of, yeah, militaristic runaround. Yeah. I think that what we probably, I mean, don't know, you don't remember seeing the first time around, do you? You're not that old, are you, Joe? No. no. Um, we all run off the Target books. So there's a lot of kind of, yeah. you know, you read... I mean, the web the of budget fear. is much higher in the Target book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but more importantly than that, the Target books allow you to read the story as being aimed at whatever age you want it to be. Exactly. You can read the Death to the Daleks book, for example, just to pick a random example, and see a story for kiddies. Or you can read the Death to the Daleks book and see a story for grown-ups. Or, more likely, somewhere in between, whatever age you are when you read it, you'll see it as your age. You'll take from it the things that appeal to whatever age you are when you read it. And so... Your imagination will fill in any blanks. It's... Yeah. And so books of stories that on screen would have been very much for children can still read as fairly grown up because you don't get the play, you don't get the direction, you don't get the tone, the feel mm. in the book. You bring your own tone and feel to it. That title, by the way, The Web of Fear, is such a mistitle, isn't it? It's, it doesn't... They get caught in a web. Don't they at the beginning? Yeah, and then what? <laughs> That's all it is, isn't it? Well, then, it's a web of yes, fear. You've got their web guns. Yeah, I know, but why webs? It's a bizarre thing, isn't it? So, it's again, another as title. He is the rest of it. But we, we. Uh, my point is that with titles like that, for instance, you, as Doctor Who fans, we just let the talons of Wang Chiang. Think about what that actually is mm. in a sentence to somebody who's never heard of it before. You say, describe that story. I'll give you that title. Now describe what you think the story's about. They would never come up with what the, the story is. It's a completely bizarre titling. Who thought the title? No, talents of Wang Chiang is a bit more. It gives there are no the talents idea. in it. It gives the idea also <laughs> of Oriental. Yeah, it does. It gives you that little little nugget at the end, but it it's doesn't not really as bad tell as you what it means. Logopolis or Castrovalva. Yeah, you don't like those, do you? No, I don't like those at all. <laughs> In the 60s, there were a lot of very generic, very generic, you know, the something of something titles, really. Mm. The Web of Fear, The Underwater Menace. To be... And... Hmm? Sorry, wrong area. Yeah. yeah. Wrong area. <laughs> but, the, you know, there's a lot of very pulpy titles. There are. Which they're uh... very deliberately going for. Yeah. They are very pulpy, aren't they? The Ice yeah, Warriors. Is. Again, so. the, nine, the late 1960s is essentially taking a flavour of quite pulpy 1940s sci-fi through the prism of 1950s B-movies that are already drawn from that source for their inspiration 
and then doing it for kids in the same way as during the early Tom Baker years they did like Hammer Horror for kids. Well, the late 60s, the Patrick Troughton era is by and large 50s pulpy B-movies for kids. When do you think the tone, uh, you know, when, when did the tone start shifting towards, you know, heading towards the 70s? I mean, uh, tone shifting John, out of Patrick out of Patrick Trout Trout into, Patrick into Trout. kind of like the John Pertwee era. Because you, you have the invasion, which feels very much like a could be it could have been a John Pertwee. Yeah, it does. But then you actually watch it. It is certainly midway between the two stills, isn't it? I mean, it's it's still very much a Pat Troughton story. But then that's mm. season six when all of a sudden, you know, in season four, they came out of the end of the Hartnell era and there's a hangover of certain things mm. while at the same time they're re-sculpting the programme into what it was about to become. And then in season five, the programme becomes that. But when you get to the end of season five, they've done as much of that as it's possible to do mm. so they have to try something else so then you get into season six and you kind of got the aftermath of those tropes you've still got you don't have uh, any strictly based on just under siege stories but you have that kind of characterization but just given a bit more scope and then every now and again you've got something that's completely out of left mm. field like the mind robber but war games is not a million miles away from base under siege it's kind of planet under siege. And instead of a bunch of characters locked in a building, you've got a bunch of bunches of characters locked on a planet. Yeah. But it kind of comes down to a similar... But in between, you've got things like the invasion, which is drawing its inspiration from the Bond films and espionage yeah, films yeah, exactly. that were also popular at the time. So yeah, and that was trying to be a little bit more adult than what had gone before. That's well, what, what happens felt a little is, bit more. Terence Sticks becomes a script editor yeah. just before the end of season five. And he obviously, whether he actually noticed that he was doing this, but he just knows he comes in and he can see that they've just done the same story 15 times in a row. <laughs> and he just, he does a couple more like that, but then he looks for something else as well. And so, yeah, they're taking their inspiration from elsewhere. And Peter Ling comes in and does basically Alice in Wonderland meets Doctor Who. And um, Derek Sherwin does James Bond meets Doctor Who. And, you know, you've got a Space Pirates, which is, well, Space Pirates is like um, The wow. Searchers meets Doctor Who. It's a Western set in space. Hmm. It's a yeah. prospecting Western set in space, actually. So Probably it's not less racism in uh, space pirates. Though. You're not a fan of the audios, are you, JR? Um, as such, because I find them fascinating. I absolutely love Evil of the Daleks. Oh, Where you mean they? listening to them? Mm, yeah, the ones. Oh that are well, I, yeah, because I just have I. You've Probably. said it before that you need a visual reference, and there, yeah, there are a lot of people I work out there better that put with a the... visual reference. Otherwise, my brain tends to turn off. Yeah, mm. well, not turn off, but I, there are lots of recons out there and, and things. You know, oh, yeah, I've done yeah. recons of lots of them. Yeah, yeah, I've I've watched most, if not all, of the sixty stories in some way, shape, or form. Mm. That's know. watched. As I've never tried Space Pirates at all. I know nothing about it. Really? No. Save it. Save it until you're ninety. <laughs> seriously i've not I've, no, I've got to the end of it i the book was terrible anyway that was just literally taken from the script i 
I mean, he just filled in so little of the blanks. And the trouble is, <laughs> there was no imagination. Like that, you're never going to get the performances. Oi, oi, oi. Jenny, the only pit, the only thing I know about Space Pirates, I think, is that picture of Patrick Trout laying off floor playing cards. That's from that story, mm. isn't it? Oh, I can't think. Again, no doubt anything Pat Trout's in will be brilliant. It did turn up. Look at the first episode of Wheel in Space, where it's just Fraser Hines and a machine that's trying to get food out of a food machine. <laughs> you know, a food machine robot. And it's literally, oh, the door, what is it? Is it the door stuck or something? And he wants to get through the door. And he spends 15 minutes trying to get through the door. Uh, Douglas Adams had written that. Exactly. Yeah. The door would be talking to him. Well, speaking of Douglas Adams, this is our 42nd episode, which is why you did the Pirate Planet. Oh. And, we, and both oh, myself and Lee were 42 at the weekend. We were. Oh. Yeah. Hey. How weird. The ultimate Ooh. answer. Yeah. Happy birthday, Simon. Happy birthday, Lee. Nah, humbug. Good night. Good <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> um, Ben and Polly. I know. I, well, well. Well, yeah. There's a certain mysticism about them, isn't there? Because so few records of them. There is. It's a real shame, actually. Well, a massive shame. I'd love to see them in action. They were, they were pretty good in the war machines, I thought. And uh, what, does, what was the name of that club they all met in? The Inferno. Inferno. That was so such a great little scene that you would never believe you'd see in Doctor Who, I think. Just a Certainly up until that point. And yes, there's something about Ben and Polly... Where after doing, because after Susan left, right, mm. they did the space girl from the future. And then they did the space boy from the future. And then they did Dodo that nobody can quite get a handle on. <laughs> it's like... Including the actress. But Sorry. the point is, between Ian and Barbara leaving and Ben and Polly turning up, They'd never attempted to do anything remotely realistic with the companions. Mm. They were just a series of actors who got shoehorned into the stories, yeah. uh, which is what they went back to with Jamie and Victoria, to be frank. But with Ben and Polly, just for a brief period, you actually had a production team who were trying, at the very least, to bring a bit more verisimilitude into the supporting cast supporting regulars it's a good word and one day i'm gonna make you spell it no don't one day i can spell it you twit <laughs> beep that because it'll sound like twit. <laughs> um no you're right I, I, I like ben and polly i like their characters they could have gone somewhere they could have been a, a bit of uh, a relationship going he still on. ends up telling polly to go off and make a cup of tea doesn't he uh, yeah i know the 60s, 60s for you, yeah, yeah. and perfect. the 70s and the early 80s you know you can't there are some things that we nowadays struggle to come to terms with in their own terms mm. like the doctor telling polly to go off and make a cup of tea in that story but it's not like he exactly does that kind of thing very often and most of the time he treats polly like a grown-up and a fully functioning member of the TARDIS crew I, 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 I think you'll find it was coffee yes actually it was coffee i was going to say that actually <laughs> myself but the point is, I'm it's sorry, not... my anus was twitching. <laughs> I don't remember him saying that. <laughs> That's why he wanted the coffee. Um, but the point is, it's not like that scene is an example of how it was with that character all the time. No, it's like William Hartnell, uh, not William Hartnell, but it's like in the Celestial Toymaker using the N word. You wouldn't do that now. And it's like in the talents of Wang Chang, yeah, yeah. having a white guy blacked up to play 
a Chinaman. And in the Crusade, it's like having a white guy blacked up to play the Saracens. You know, Salamander. I mean, you know, those were the. If you you weren't born in that era, it's um, that's just what went on. That's just what went yeah, on. I mean, you, you had Othello, you would cast Anthony Hopkins blacked up, because that's what you do. Because he's a, an actor, and you know, that's the person you get in. It doesn't make any sense now. Though you think, well, surely you get a black actor in. You can't. Still, still happens season. now, doesn't it? In um, yes. Prometheus. Why? Why is guy thingy dressed as an old I man? Guess. Why don't they just get an old actor? Yeah, good point. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, yeah. I digress completely. Been ageist. How is he? I've not seen it. Yeah, Guy Pearce playing an old bloke. Guy Pearce is great, but they didn't need him in that role. No. Anyway. Anyway, the point is, you can't, <laughs> you can't, if you're going to criticise anything, you can't criticise television of the 1960s for being television of the 1960s. No. You have to just get past that and enjoy the rest of it. Yeah. And it is a hugely, massively enjoyable era of Doctor Who. And it is the biggest shame that so much of it is missing because for all the fandom wants stories like the tomb of the cybermen to turn up and be these dark adult classics that they thought they were going to be actually when tomb of the cybermen turns up and turns out just to be an enjoyable romp for kids it's all the better for it Mm. that's how i want all the 19 60s (laughs)60s <laughs> Patrick Trout stories to be the Dominators, one of the most reviled stories of the 1960s. And yet, I'd happily chuck the Dominators on and spend two hours in the company of those characters, having as much fun as they're having. And the entire guest cast is having just as much fun mm. you being get there out much, and doing do it with them. <laughs> Pardon? You don't get out much. The bloke in a dress, I don't think, was having too much fun. They're all dresses. They're all wearing dresses. I want to see it in colour. Can somebody colourise it? That'd be a laugh. Table colours probably. Could, um, I've, I've said I don't think so. Not take, given how long it's taken him to do episode one of The Mind of Evil. <laughs> uh, it was kind of prolific, though. I'm going back to that list of monsters, that, that all of a sudden, and, and a good majority of them came back in one, one form or another. I thought yeah. the Ice Warriors, uh, the actual... You know, the, the fact that they're found in the ice and they call the Ice Warriors and they're Martians, it's, it's a bit of a weird, dumb title to give a monster, is it not? But the sea devils. What I really liked about... <laughs> yeah. 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 But We sea, don't learn from our mistakes, we no. just repeat them. <laughs> no, but I think the they sea, got it right with the quarks. The sea devils was... Ter- wasn't it turned by the guy in the oil rig? So, oh, they're like sea devils or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then that stuck. Yeah. And I'm sh- Did John Pertwee ever call them sea devils or the doctor after that? Did he actually call them the sea devils? called sea devils on screen. It mm. wasn't till mm. Warriors of the Deep where the Silurians yeah. are saying, we must wake our sea devil cousins up. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's where it all goes a bit. Yeah. It's because of the Doctor <laughs> Who monster book which said these are called the sea devils. So that's Terry Dick's fault. One of the best things John Pertwee here did to a Pat Trouton monster was to give it that ambiguity. You don't, you didn't know whether he was going to be a baddie or a goodie. You're talking about the Ice Warriors. It was, it was a great idea to do that and you could do it with them because they had this ability yeah it was it wasn't about being bad it was about doing the right thing Mm. insofar as they were concerned yeah yeah they definitely need more more of a background and more padding and you know it'd be great to see what happens but then there was a huge difference between the 60s and 70s because you couldn't have written that story even two two or three years earlier you couldn't have written the Curse of Peladon and put it in Patrick Trouton's last season. No. It just wouldn't have fit. It would stuck out like a sore thumb doing something like that. All the aliens would have to be, yeah. 
roaming through the woods or are there any, through corridors uh, killing people. I mean, the Ice Warriors come with their Ice Lord superiors, but to all intents and purposes, they're just a slightly more talkative, but slightly more shouty, ranty, but still one-note performances insofar as texture of characterization is concerned. Are there any aliens or in the Patrick Troughton era where you actually have alien races characterized? Because even the Cybermen are using like... What about the fish people? Well, yeah, precisely. <laughs> they start a revolution, don't they? <laughs> don't they help start a revolution? I'm talking people? about characterizing them as individual people. Um, I'm sure one of them was called... It didn't really happen until the Cybermen. Alien races in the Patrick Troughton era. Is no, there an alien not. race where there any of them one. are really properly characterized yeah. as no. people? There isn't, is there? No. Macra? No, not really. Cybermen? No. There isn't. And You're this right. is, of course, the era where the Cybermen there was, there are was just the, um, generic robots. Agri- there was the agoraphobic Yeti who didn't come out of the cave. <laughs> that was in the Five Doctors. <laughs> oh, <was> it? <laughs> yes, it was. He was having <laughs> counselling. Um, you didn't see that episode. It's a spin-off. It was just a different time. Mm. But even the um, human villains, you know, like... Uh, Tobias Vaughan actually Tobias Vaughan I think is the best villain I know they're all period. great human yeah. villains mm. brilliant uh, yeah but you've villains. got Zarkov then haven't you is that what his name is the one in Flash uh, Gordon Underwater Menace is he called Zarkov something like that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. nothing yeah. the world can stop me now what more do I need to say it's but a, have you seen the Underwater Menace yeah well the ones that exist the one you've not seen the one that's been found yet no but we're going to aren't we no, but I haven't seen it. You're right. I've just had. Have you listened like to listen- episodes one and four? Yes, I heard it all. Have you? And is he as bad as that all the way through? Yes, because I have not heard that. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's as bad as all the way through. That is his famous line, of course. But he's all like this all the way through. Um, right, have, blessed. Well, it'd be better in it to be honest. It'd have more subtlety. I didn't think he was that bad in the clip they released of episode two on the website. No, he's pretty bad. He's very one-dimensional. All a bit shouty and ravey. That's very early in the era. Mm. But uh, I can't think of any other human villains that really stand out as being quite well characterised. Um, in the Macro Terror, you've got, um, what's his face, Peter Jeffrey from Androids of Tara. Plays the commandant of the camp. Yeah. He's quite well characterised. He's not bad. And then you've got all these base leaders... I mean, uh, I like the Macra Terror. Actually, well, I quite enjoyed the Macra story, giving right? it all that. And then doing a visual got, joke on right on. But you've podcast. got people like uh, what's he called, Clint, Clint, Clint in yeah. the yeah, Ice sorry. Warriors, yeah. and in well, Fury from the Deep, you've got. Sorry, what Simon? We missed that. What was that? Can you get nothing, that? nothing. No, don't you dare! An absolute child. <laughs> sorry, I'll go back to the back of the classroom. But you've got quite a lot of fairly well written. Written in a ladybird <laughs> guide to people who might be working on space bases style, perhaps. Yeah, what about the Dominators villains? Were the, who, who were they again? The Dominators. Oh, they were the Dominators. <laughs> Do you think they were well-rounded? And Have you well-rounded? got to that point in the podcast <laughs> now where you just can't be bothered to concentrate on what anybody's saying anymore, so you yes. just come up with funny stuff for the sake of it? I think so, yeah. So no, we, but you you have said you have said about the the villains and the characters and things. I mean, I was just trying to think of the dominators. I literally out loud, I was thinking, well, who were they and, and what were their what was their point? What were they trying to achieve? And 
you know, they just they wanted to dominate. They just wanted to dominate, didn't they? Yeah. Hence the name. Quarks, though, cool. No, the two dominators have quite an interesting relationship between the <clears throat> alpha dominator who is in charge and the beta dominator who is supposed to be subservient but questions his leader's orders and to his face and every time he gets chance to go off on his own actually goes behind his back and disobeys his orders mm. and gets them into trouble by running the quarks down and cocking yeah. all sorts of things up and it's not it may not be written with the amount of gray scales as you know Thackeray wrote in war and peace or whatever but it's not bad for a children's sci-fi series in 1968 so it's not it's not completely one-dimensional. No, it's not Dominators bad. is certainly not one-dimensional. I like the fact that Travers comes back as well. Yeah, that was a nice... Uh, yeah, they're actually a returning character. Yeah, He's, there's a lot of good yeah. stuff in, in the Patrick Troughton era. And, you know, a lot of bad stuff. Mm. But it's it's one of those eras where there's a really, really weird dichotomy in between the things that they get right and the things that they get wrong and the fact that they muddle through and the fact that they make something of everything. But at the heart of it, you've to go back to the fact that it's Patrick Troughton that... It's Patrick Troughton that makes it. Everything they write... There's a warmth because of him. Everything that they write, they write with a simplicity that when they do things that have a logic to them, like bringing the Travers character back because it's 40 years later and ties the two stories together mm. even more so than would have been otherwise just because it was a sequel they do things like that which is a nice touch but then they'll do something like uh, what were we saying the mind robber which will get all sorts of storytelling logic all over the place but that there, there, there's a simplicity of approach that overrides those things that allows the actors to have fun with the characters and know that they can get through it because nobody's not going to understand what's going on in the stories. You never get confused by a Patrick Troughton story in the same way as you do in a Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy story, which are written with a lot more complexity Mm. and a lot more sophistication but don't tell a nice, simple story that you can follow. Ghost light. Well, yeah, but not just. I'm not just talking about stories that are ostensibly complicated. I'm talking about stories that are ostensibly simple. I mean, look at Peter Davison. Terminus should be really simple. But, I mean, can you tell me what Terminus was about? No, but they could have renamed it Terminal, couldn't they? But what is that- it is terminally dull. Right. You've just taken a sheep shop, but. Yeah, I know. It's, what is it about? It's a cheap shop. Um, it's about lepers, isn't it? Yeah, but is it about lepers? The regeneration, or is it about... lepers, myth. I don't know. I don't actually care, to be honest. Not with that one, anyway. Maybe you can tell me what it's about, Mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's about the lezards, isn't it? I mean, the the lazars. The lazars. Yeah. <laughs> a very badly realised dog. Oh, my God. We've got another <laughs> podcast to do in a minute, and we're at cheap shots already. Good idea. No, I'm leaving for the next one. No, but... Um, <laughs> I know it's a cliche, it's probably been said hundreds of times before, but uh, Patrick Troughton, without him, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about 50 years of Doctor Who. No, no, you're right, Mark. I mean, he, that if it wasn't for him making a success of that part, 
just wouldn't have carried on, would it? I mean, the the jump from William Hartnell. What would it have been like as a fan of Doctor Who at that, that time, as a kid, and you know that your main character is about to change to somebody else? I wonder how they all felt, how much was riding on that. They going to change, did they? He just did it. No, no, okay, well, when he changed, you come back and you go, right, am I going to like this bloke or what? And he won people over really quickly, mm-hmm. and that's just due to Pat. And every single scene, like I say, you're looking at him. There's, there was a, a, a shot in Enemy of the World that I was watching, and there were three characters, one in the foreground, one to the right, and the Doctor is in the far back, is in the background. But he's doing a particular, he's doing this face or whatever, and you're looking at him, you're not looking at the guy at the front talking, you're still looking at Pat, because he just knows how to work the camera. And I was just thinking about the three Doctors, that it comes alive when he comes into it. The three Doctors, yeah. The three he Doctors. suddenly gets a, yeah. a, a well, shot he's, of... He's probably the best thing in it, I think. Um, but to change him from an Edwardian gent, almost, you know, a bit of a grumpy old man, a little bit kind of... He's got this... William Hart's got a twinkle in his eye, but Pat has taken that twinkle and just Pat. ran with it. <laughs> Lizzie, your uncle or something. Yeah, Uncle Pat has taken that twinkle and he's run with it. You know he wanted to black up, didn't he? What? Or oh, play it in entire pirate yeah, costume. Yeah, he, he wanted to almost be in disguise. That was yeah, his first idea. Like they were trying to come up with what he was going to look like. Simon didn't know this he wanted, either. To, he wanted to do like I an Arabian night. recollection of it. I don't think I believed it, though. That's lucky. Oh, yes. Have, having read Michael Troughton's <laughs> book, I can now kind of understand why he perhaps didn't want to be a public figure. Yeah. On account of the bigamy. There was a bit of that, yeah. Mm. Bless him. Oh. Really? Yeah. Everybody's got their skeletons. They have indeed. You know what I'll say though? Everybody always says that. They'll say without Pat Trown, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Doctor Who because of what he did. But it wasn't just what he did. It was somebody in the production office mm. who said, let's replace William Hartnell. And somebody else in that production office said, and let's not just do a younger William Hartnell. Let's change it yeah. altogether. Yeah. And that wasn't Pat Trown. And that was the most important thing. Mm. Because, yes, Patrick Drowan made a huge success of The Second Doctor. He did. And so we're sitting here today talking about it. But he's not the only actor who might possibly have made a success of The Second Doctor. Who's to know, though? I mean, who else was on the list? Yes, well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that's ambiguous. Somebody else may have made as big a success of it as Patrick Drowan did, but it's completely unambiguous that the person who said, let's replace William Mm. Hartnell and let's start this thing that ultimately was called Regeneration... That was the stroke of genius. Ali, you gave my kids Fraggle Rock on DVD. Of I course, did. Fulton Mackay. Now, what stage was Fulton Mackay at for the part? Was that around that time? Fourth, wasn't it? Am I right? Was it that late I on? think it might have been. Yeah. All right. I, don't I know think he, he would have been. But, but Fulton Mackay is an actor who might possibly have made a success of following William Hartnell. Yeah. There are plenty of actors who could have done it. And I'm not trying to belittle Patrick Troughton here because Patrick Troughton did do it did make a success of it. But I think it's the most important thing is somebody thought to put him there. You could put anybody in the part, but it's it's who it is. That's what they bring to it. It's what they bring to it. Yes, but the, the point I'm making is before somebody put Patrick Troughton in the yeah, part, somebody had to be that born. had not... Oh. I know what you mean, but it was, that it was, had production, never been it was a production decision. So that's important. But what I mean is they could have chosen... And they've made the choice, oh, let's regenerate, let's choose somebody, we'll go to the cinema, we'll see him, we'll pick him. They could have picked anybody, and we're never going to know. But what we do know is that Pat made 
a different version of the character that everybody loved a success. I suppose right in, from the offset. In, in the same fact. vein as people will say, Christopher Eccleston is responsible for the new series being a success. But you're all but, entirely well, missing my point. The point in one sentence is the point is that it hadn't happened before. No, the no. idea to do that was the most important thing in terms of Doctor Who having longevity. The most important thing there has ever been. Not the person who did it, or the person who did it after that, or the person who did it after that. They're all important. Yeah, it's an important idea. But it may not have been a success if you didn't have the right person. It's a great idea, but if you don't have the right person running with the torch... But if you hadn't had that idea, then, Mm. you know, the whether it would have been a success wouldn't have come into it. Do you not get that if they hadn't had the idea of to changing. have a different actor? Yeah. Then oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's the crux yeah. of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's that's more your important. point. It's a good idea. No, it's not my point that it's a good idea. It's my <laughs> point that it is the most important thing. But it's not the success of the series. Yes, it is. It's absolutely yeah, the success if, of the if series. If Pat Troughton or whoever it was that took it failed, that would have been two doctors, and that would have been it. You wouldn't have got John Pertwee or anybody else after it. No yes, matter how great, the, no matter how, how good the regeneration you'd have is, one doctor and it would well, have failed. Yeah, that's true. So you know, uh, Patrick Troughton may have failed. It's a great it? concept, and they may have... but it was carried by a fantastic actor into the next part of its journey. So you're saying that the, okay. the idea of I a thousand people, you're right, Joe. The, the idea, I am actually right. saying you're right. The, the you know, a thousand people handing a torch to each other for the Olympics. You know, it's a great idea, it's a great concept, but you need people who are strong but you to run with it in order for it to You to don't work. hand the torch to Mr Blobby, do you? <laughs> <laughs> it I will, don't know, just... it nearly did, didn't they? So I think there's, yeah. They had all I... sorts of people carrying those torches. They did, yeah. So I don't think your analogy flies. But no, 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 yeah. I mean, you get somebody with a torch, you run with it, you pass it on, it carries on. It's brilliant. You know, if you have somebody you give the torch to and they look at it and go, oh, I don't want to do this and drop it on the floor, nothing's going to happen beyond that. You know, the character's not there, the personality's not there, they don't want to do it, they're not making an effort. It could have got an actor in that was great for a couple of goes and then just maybe failed or it just wasn't the right personality wasn't the thing that connected with the audience but Think, you're saying that the people could carrying a crap the torch actor, basically. more important than the torch <laughs> anyway I think we're nearly there aren't we I think we're all pretty much agreed on it is an, a brilliant idea to have regeneration yeah an excellent concept <laughs> and an excellent actor to boot so That's he's been gone. he's been JR he's been Mark he's been Lee <laughs> <laughs> And I was, Simon. <laughs> and we will talk again soon. Yes. Too bloody soon. I'm shaking my booty.
fruit and vegetable. But no, 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 yeah, but no, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no, no, yeah. I know, I give up. I'm not even going to try anymore. Yeah, twat. <laughs>